My first job um, was right when I had finished my uh, high school. I homeschooled my high school years because, uh, for, for a number of reasons, but for one, we were living in Malaysia and we had just come back after having been in the States for three years. And so when we moved back to Malaysia, it was a bit hard for me to get into the public school system again because it was all taught in Malay. And uh, I understood enough to get by, but not enough to actually learn science and physics in, you know. So, uh, and so th- those years were a great blessing for me where I was able to sort of work ahead and work hard and then have all this extra time to do other things. And my parents were teaching at a Bible school in Malaysia at the time, and so I would sit in to their classes. Well, I'd kind of sort of, uh, I would sort of work in fits and starts, and so I'd had, I had finished my, um, my senior year sometime in July or August of a year, and, and not even paying attention to sort of how American school years are, because we'd been back in Malaysia where our school years are January through December. And so, anyway, I had missed kind of the fall enrollment for college and thought, well, I'd better get a job and, and uh, work for a few months. And so the job that I had was as a copy editor um, for an ad agency which sounds sort of glamorous, I'd like to say, was my first foray into the publishing industry, except that it was really classified ads, you know, so I was, I was proofing, uh, you, you know, making sure that when people said they were selling something for a certain amount of money, that there's no typos, and there really wasn't any, um, but I made a, you know, a, a decent amount, and then I went to college, and um, through college, I worked at the library. In fact, if you ever go to Oral Roberts University, taking ch- uh, one of your children there or whatever, uh, you'll see, I think, to this day. Hopefully they've kept the legacy alive. Uh, but you'll see a picture of me my freshman year working in the library. You know, super skinny, gold rim glasses, puffy uh, sweater or something, uh, shelving books, you know. So uh, again, books and stuff, you know. I was always a- a- around it. Um, but uh, earning a-, a meager amount of money. And then when I graduated, uh, the university says, hey, we'd like to hire you to lead worship at chapels. And so uh, that was really great because it was a job that paid me $18,000 a year. And I was just pumped about this. What am I going to do with all this money, you know? Um, and I had an apartment with Brent Parsley, who for uh, many, many years was the youth pastor here. And uh, Brent and I had a cheap little apartment not far from campus. And, and uh, you know, we thought it was just great fun to buy uh, things from the, the, the Goodwill store and to decorate that way. And, and uh, anyway, uh, then after that, I came out here. And I came out here first as an intern and apprentice to Ross. David, you'll tell me if it's cutting in and out, and just help me out with that, because I can't always tell how it sounds out here. And, uh, and I went from my 18000 a year job to a 12000 a year uh, quote-unquote job. It was sort of apprenticing to Ross. And so uh, I, I really didn't think about it at the time, but my career was sort of moving backwards uh, in the wrong direction. Uh, but during those years, I remember thinking, you know, there's going to be a day where there will be more money and, and then I can do these things or, or, or I could fund this or wouldn't it be great someday to do this or that. Well, I, I don't know what your um, experience were like, but my 20s were full of big dreams like that. Well, what if we could do this someday or maybe one day we'd do this? And some of them were God-inspired and some of them were tainted by ego and all of that sort of thing. But I noticed that a lot of them were always sort of delayed. Uh, it, it, whatever it was, it was always something that would apply later because I didn't have what it took now. And I think if, we, if we're honest, probably all of us at a different time or another have felt that way where maybe it's not a money thing, maybe it's a skill thing, or maybe it's not a skill thing, maybe it's a time thing, or maybe it's not a time thing, it's just an insecurity thing. And you're like, you know, I'd really like to do something, but yeah, I just, uh, it's not me, and I, maybe it's someone else, and you know. And... Um, 
What I want to say to you is that it's very easy to imagine that God's kingdom works like the world's kingdom, which is that the strong and the rich and the powerful are the ones who really get stuff done. Now, if we were to think of, okay, who are the people that are really making a difference? Who are the ones that God would say, aha, I notice you? We might say, well, maybe the Bill Gates Foundation. I mean, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates, I mean, they're doing uh, tremendous stuff. Maybe it's Warren Buffett. Maybe it's some of these people who have made just gobs and gobs of money, more money than we can fathom, and that are, you know, eliminating this. Maybe it's Bono. I mean, talk about a platform. You know, here's a guy that's hundreds of thousands of people every year, or maybe much more than that, and he's got a stage to kind of rally people to a cause, and you're thinking, man, that's it. Or maybe it's political figures, and you think, well, look, if there was someone, and there's no doubt God uses us in all these different arenas. There's no denying that. But sometimes we can imagine that God only uses those people and not itty-bitty me. And that maybe when it really comes down to it, the ones who are making a dent, so to speak, in the world are not the ones who don't have much, but it's the ones who have lots, lots of talent, lots of time, lots of skill, lots of influence, lots of money. There's this story here in the text that we're going to read tonight in Luke 21 that is quite a bit similar to that. There's a person that comes in that from all the outside signs, is the person that you would think, yep, man, that guy is playing a part. I mean, this guy deserves a plaque. He's doing something. Looking up, this is Luke 21, verse 1. Looking up, Jesus saw rich people throwing their gifts into the collection box for the temple treasury. Now, we don't know exactly what this collection box was. We don't know if it was a, a regular tithe or a special offering towards the, the upkeep of the temple or the maintenance of it. We're not exactly sure. But there were rich people who were throwing gifts. I mean, very obviously, I mean, these are the people when the offering buckets go down, like, just nonchalantly drop a couple of hundreds in. I mean, this is, uh, very obviously, these people are making a show of it. And Jesus also saw a poor widow throw in two small copper copper coins worth a penny. And he said, I assure you that this poor widow has put in more than them all. All of them are giving out of their spare change. But she, from her hopeless poverty, has given everything she had to live on. Now, that's remarkable. Now, if you've been around church a little bit, or maybe even just sort of in America, we kind of maybe are familiar with stories from the Gospels, and this might be one of, a, one of the more well-known ones. We kind of talk about the widow's two mites, right? And you're thinking, she gave mites? Like, that's kind of weird. Like, would you give lice? I mean, what, you know? No, 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 like, like copper coins, okay? So this is why I'm using a, a more common English sort of a translation here. But we kind of know this story, and so we're, we're used to kind of thinking, well, yeah, man, that's, isn't that really sweet? But maybe to put it in perspective, it would be to, I don't know, let's say everybody got together at, the, at, at some banquet for humanitarian aid, and they made an announcement and said, you know, tonight we're going to give an award to the person who's given the most to humanitarian aid this year. And you look over to your left, and there's the Gates family. And you think, well, gee, it's got, it's got to be them. You know, and you look over, and there's maybe the Buffets, And you think, well, it's got to be them. And, and then all of a sudden, off the streets comes this homeless dude. And you're thinking, oh, good, listen, don't crash this party. This is like the who's who's. And he sits down, horror of horrors, right on the front row. Everyone else is in tuxes and black gowns. And you're thinking, oh, no, where does this get you? 
And then before you could even stop him or escort him out, the MC says, and the award goes to Joe Smith. And he comes up here, he's you know, maybe missing a couple teeth, and he's like, thanks, guys. You know. I mean, this is, this is outrageous. How could Jesus say that this widow has given more than anyone else? It's outrageous. Don't forget that a widow in Jesus' day is not like a widow in our day. And what I mean by that is we live, thankfully in many regards, in a society that has uh, enabled people to be able to enter the workforce, regardless of race or gender. And, and so if tragedy sort of fall, befalls a, a, a family and the woman needs to go back into the work, they can do that. Well, in Jesus, it wasn't like that. Women had all the power that maybe a piece of furniture had, to put it bluntly. Uh, they were essentially treated um, as part of the uh, kind of the, the property. They had no rights of their own. And so if you were a, a woman and your husband happened to pass away, Again, life expectancy in the first century, there's different excavations that estimate different things, and some records say maybe this, some records say that. Either way, life expectancy in the first century was not much over 30 for a male, 25 for a female. Part of that is the hardship of life, part of that is the dangers of childbearing, all of this stuff. So you're a woman alive in this time, and your husband dies, and you outlive him. What are you going to do? Who's taking care of you? And so, in all likelihood, a a widow, this is why this translation of the Bible says, uh, gave out of her hopeless poverty. What a phrase. Hopeless poverty. A person who, there's just no way she was going to change her social standing. This was not a matter of try harder or quit being lazy. This was a person who, there was no way she was going to get out of this. And yet, Jesus says, actually, this woman who empties out what she's got, maybe the two copper coins she had gotten that day, who gives it, Jesus says, this woman, this is the one who's given more. First of all, this is consistent with Luke's theme. If you've been following our series, you know, we've almost been in this for a year now. I think we started this kind of mid-Advent last year, and here we are just about to wrap up Luke. If you've been following this series, maybe you've caught the theme by now, but Luke is all about showing a great reversal. If you wanted to sketch out a little phrase in your notepad, you could say it's a great reversal. So what do you mean by that? Remember Mary's song, even in the beginning of Luke, in Luke 2, she says, look, the poor, you've lifted up the poor and seated them with the princes. You've, you've caused them to rise up from the ash heap, from the dust, and you've seated them with rulers, and the rulers you've cast down. I think last year at Advent I made the comment that Mary's song was less sort of this beautiful uh, symphony and maybe a little bit more like Rage Against the Machine, you know, because she's really calling for, she's really announcing that the baby that she's carrying is going to reverse things. And the ones who are in power are going to be brought down and the ones who are low are going to be brought up. There's a great reversal. You see this theme when Jesus stands up in Luke chapter 4, and reads the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he says, look, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. Jesus announces His own mission as a mission toward the poor. Luke emphasizes that because he wants us to see Jesus bringing about, as the one who brings about the great reversal. Jesus' beatitudes in Luke. Luke doesn't do what Matthew does. Matthew does this whole Poor in, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So beautiful. 
And Luke just says, actually, Jesus was looking at a crowd of people and he said, you, blessed are you, not those, blessed are you who are poor. Yours is the kingdom. Blessed are you who are hungry, for you will be filled. In a very real way, Jesus was sort of saying, hey, you, the ones whom the world says are unlucky, I'm saying you're lucky. Someone should write a book about that. Over and over again in the Gospel of Luke, you see Jesus then announcing good news to the outsider. Luke makes a point to tell us the stories of Jesus going to a Samaritan and going to the widow and going to the leper. Why is Luke particularly pay special emphasis to this? Because he's trying to say something. Jesus has come. And because Jesus has come, this great reversal is beginning to happen. It's beginning to happen. Something different is going on. And so when this story is told, we're meant to kind of see it. We're meant to sort of say, oh yeah, those are the rich guys dumping in their stuff. And we're thinking, oh, these are the influencers. These are the bigwigs. These are the ones that heaven pays attention to. And then Jesus himself says, eh, they gave out of their spare change. This woman gave it all. One of the things that we see over and over again in the Gospels, especially Matthew and Luke, is this theme about the kingdom. And when Jesus tells parables about the kingdom, very often the stinger or or the, the kind of the zinger point is to say, look, not only is the kingdom here, but the kingdom's here in me because I'm here. And not only that, what are you going to do about it? And the answer he's looking for is this wholehearted response, this selling out to the kingdom. This is why he talks about a man who finds a treasure in the field and sells all that he has, you know, goes, or the pearl of great price. This is the idea of, I'm going to sell out for this. This is it. Nobody really notices it because it looks like a Galilean countryside, country bumpkin kind of guy from Nazareth. It doesn't look like the kingdom but I'm pretty sure that's him. And I'm going to sell out to have that. Over and over again, when Jesus brings his announcement about the kingdom, he's saying, look, so how are you going to respond to this? Are you going to try to hang on to a little bit, or are you going to sell out for it? This is why the story where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, hey, what do I got to do to inherit the life of the age to come? How How do I get in on this? And Jesus tells him something he doesn't sort of give to anyone else. He's telling something particular to him. He says, look, sell everything you have. Give it to the poor. And the Bible says what? The man walked away sad. There's this idea that when Jesus confronts us and he says, hey, I'm here. That's the good news. The bad news is I'm king. So you kind of got to give it up. Uh, well, I, he's waiting for this wholehearted Response. The kingdom requires a wholehearted response. This story is very much like that because uh, in, in a very real way you could say God notices what was given and Jesus noticed what was kept. Jesus noticed what was given and what was kept and the idea is, look, this woman is saying the very thing that was her last sustenance, she's saying, oh, I'm giving it. Why? Because she's saying, look, There's something bigger than me. Now, it's not directly towards Jesus, but it's Jesus that says she's done something that even the rich don't get. She's selling out to this. She's buying into this quite wholly. 
wholeheartedly. Can we talk for a minute about money? (laughs) Money's great, isn't it? I mean, here's a dollar bill, you know, and uh, it's it's great. Money allows us to do a lot of things. Money represents a number of things. You could say money represents my time because I put in time to get money. It takes time to get money. Maybe time even in the sense of waiting for an investment, waiting for the market to, where's that upturn? It's coming, is it coming? It's like, oh, it takes time. Or maybe money also represents effort. It represents a ton of effort. It's saying, hey, look, I, you know, I, I, this is the result of my sweat and my work. I mean, I work for this. And this is, it represents your own effort. Money maybe represents a talent or a giftedness. Um, very often, though, I think some of, sometimes the people we think are, are, are extremely talented are really people who've had a measure of talent and then worked really hard at it, you know. Um, but we like to imagine that they were just born that way with this incredible gift. Nevertheless, money does represent a certain amount of talent. You'd say, well, gee, I don't know. How did, I, how did, how did she get to that hot place? How did he get to that place? You know, there's a certain amount of talent in, involved in it. So the trouble with money is that it's not just money. It represents something. It's, it's close to the heart. In a very real way, a big part of who we are uh, is represented by that paycheck we, we take home. It's like, you know what? I gave time for that. I gave effort for that. I gave talent for that, gifts for that. I gave up something of myself to get this. But money... Uh, also, the way we, that's how we get it. When you think of money and how we spend it, money represents what we love. What we love. I wanted to say like and love, and it said life, which is a wonderful new word. Money also represents our desires, our values. To say, you know what, I'm not going to spend money on this, but I will on that. Uh, you know, I have a number of friends who say, man, how come you don't have the new iPhone? So my iPhone 3 GS works just fine. I know what you got. You know. And they're like, you got this and this and this, and you just bought that book. And then I'm like, yeah. It's because I chose to buy the, that book that I can't buy that phone. You know? So how we spend it sort of shows what we value, right? There are people who say, you know, I'm not going to buy a $4 cup of coffee from Starbucks, but I will buy something else. We've all, the way we spend money kind of reflects a little bit of our personality, maybe our preferences, maybe our, our values. No doubt about it. That's why it's really uncomfortable when we talk about money, because it's deeply personal. How we get it is very personal. How we spend it is very personal. But I think that's exactly why Jesus talks about it. Now, this passage, not as directly as some of the other passages he says. Luke 6, for example, right after he says, Blessed are you who are poor, he says, Woe to you who are rich. Well, that's kind of a bummer. What does he mean? And he's talking about those who are putting their trust in their riches. But Jesus kind of gets in our face a little bit very often about money. So by the time we get to this story, you're like, yeah, you would say that, Jesus. You would. This is like a classic Jesus move. You would say that she gave more. <laughs> That's because when we're talking about money, we're really talking about our hearts. We're really talking about ownership. We're really talking about 
who's got you. We're not talking about what you got. We're talking about who's got you. And that's why I think Jesus hits on this so much. I was, I'm in a Bible study with a couple of guys from Sunday night, and this morning we, we finished up Philippians 4 and read this verse that was so familiar. But Paul, over and over again to the Philippians, he basically says to them, look, you're like no other church. The, the way that you've uh, given me this gift, and they had sent a gift to him through uh, one of their mutual friends, Epaphroditus, and, 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 and Paul's like just overflowing with gratitude for this gift. And he's saying, man, no other church has partnered with me in giving and receiving like this. And he says in verse 18, I now have plenty and it's more than enough. I'm full to overflowing because I received the gifts that you sent from Epaphroditus. Those gifts give off a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice that pleases God. And my God will meet your every need out of his riches in the glory that is found in Christ Jesus. It's interesting that Paul pulls from sacrifice language. This is obviously language from the Old Testament. Now, I don't know what... When when I say sacrifice or Old Testament sacrifices or something being burnt, how many of you think atonement or sin? Okay. How many of you think that's a bloody mess? How many of you aren't sure what to think about Old Testament sacrifices, animals, burnt stuff? Right. Do you know that the majority of sacrifices in the Old Testament were actually not really centered on sin? That the majority of sacrifices, if you read through Leviticus, and I, I do recommend it, um, you, will, you will learn. I mean, you could have fun with it. I'm going to figure out how many different sacrifices. Most of these sacrifices are like Thanksgiving offerings and give thanks because of this. And this is an offering when there's a, this happens and when this happens. And in first fruits, when you have a good harvest, it's all just sort of what we would say as worship. So a lot of times we think of sacrifices, those crazy Old Testament Israelites, they were trying to win God's favor by burning goats. No, no, no. This was a people who already knew that they belonged to God. This was a people who weren't trying to earn their way with God. They were already God's people. These were people that were just so thrilled that they belonged to God that they offered a sacrifice. It was sort of like saying, you know what? Isn't this great? We're the chosen people. Hey, that's the reason to give thanks. Let's go, have, let's go make a sacrifice. Okay, let's go. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? Now, parallel that here. Jesse said something great in joy time. He says, look, sometimes we want to give to God because we want to get back from him. Or, or maybe sometimes we think of giving to God as a way to kind of buy our way into it. To sort of say, well, God, you know, I've kind of been, I don't know how, how you feel, but sort of been a bad person in this part of my life. And now that I have all this money, I just would like to make up for it. And so, hey, here's gobs and gobs of money is just kind of to ease my conscience. I just want to feel better about it, you know. But you know what? That's not what Paul's saying. He's saying your gift to me was like this beautiful offering to God. You know, like one of those offerings we Jews used to do and we were just thrilled about being God's people. Doesn't that change it for you? That sacrificial giving is not really about earning anything with God. It's really not works-related at all. It's not a way to say, okay, well, look, I'm a Christian. I guess i got to you know, you know, say the prayer for forgiveness and then put some money in, and then God will sort of you know, turn a blind eye. No. It's quite the opposite. It's saying, you know what? This is amazing. God's rescued us. God saved us. 
It's the Philippian church saying, oh my gosh, Paul, you told us this good news about Jesus. We just can't get over it. We want to partner with you. Here's a great gift we want to send to you. It's partnership. It's joy. Sacrificial giving is also not uh, investment thinking. Now, this is, this is tricky. <laughs> because in our world, there's really... There's really uh, Two kinds of giving that we're used to. One is sort of a donation, kind of a sympathy gift. Man, oh, that poor kid. Yeah, man, you know, here, have, hey, hey, here's ten bucks. Go buy yourself dinner. You know, like, and I, I love it. But my um, Holly's grandparents, you know, they lived through the Great Depression and everything, so their concept of money is totally different. But uh, in the first few years, uh, they would send us as an anniversary card. They would give us, you know, ten dollars, and like, you guys, you kids, go out for a great date on your anniversary. You know, Just thinking. That's so sweet, you know. Not sure where we would go, but but it's not a little sympathy gift. Neither is it investment. We're used to investment thinking. All right, if I give this much money, then God will multiply it, and let's see if we do the math. And and I've been in loads of look, I just told you I went to ORU for goodness sake. I heard more sermons than I could stand about how God is mathematical. And that if you would do this, then this would do this. Would do that. Thankfully, that's not the way they are now, but that was sort of dominant in the time that I was there. And, and to be honest, can I be honest with you? I mean, it made me sort of never want to talk about money ever. Because it's just, ugh, it's gross. I don't, want to, I don't want to do that. I don't want to say that. And then you realize that you just can't escape it. But the way the Bible talks about money is not as investment thinking, well, if I give this, what will the church do to multiply this? And what's it going to go? You know, all this stuff. Look, look. Do you know the problem with investment thinking? It's still you in control. It's still you in control. You're essentially saying, God, I want a good return for my money. And so I'm going to give it. Nope, not you. Yes, you. Look, there are places and, and times to think like that. But when we give to God in church, like this widow was doing at the temple what we're doing is we're saying, you know what? This isn't investment thinking. This isn't like calculative. This is, what, this is worship. This is out of gratitude. This is saying, God, I don't have anything, but you've got me. And because you've got me, you've got this. You've got it all. See, the truth is, for all the debate about tithing and 10%, is that Old Testament, you know, whatever. The truth is, God does care about percentages. He wants 100% of it. That God is looking at percentages. But the percentage he notices is all. I think in the slides here I said percentage matters. Jesus wants it all. If we look at it, they're probably, from the outside, it's very difficult to tell because two people can be serving or giving of their time or their money. Or whatever. They could be leading. They could be serving. They could be doing all this stuff. And from the outside, they look like they're doing the same thing could look like, well, isn't that great? But only Jesus knows who's giving out of this idea to impress people. You kind of get the impression that these rich guys were, were giving into the bucket, sort of this tip for God kind of thing, as a way of justifying themselves, as a way of sort of showing, yeah, look at me. Yeah, I got this. Look, Look, we are really contributing to the temple here. Yeah, I'm really doing something. It's as a way of sort of justifying yourself, making yourself look right, making yourself look good. 
Can I tell you that nothing we give to God, whether it's our time or our money or whatever it is, nothing ought to come from the heart of trying to justify ourselves. That's why we read that Old Testament prayer of David's. Who could ever give to God? Excuse me? What? No. This isn't a way of saying, yeah, God, hey, take note. Hey, yep, here it is. Bing. Is that good? Am I good? Heaven? Huh? (laughs) You just can't do that. We don't give to justify ourselves. Neither do we give to pay back. I think that's the other thing that plagues Christians sometimes is this, this mentality. Well, God gave it all, so you better. Oh, no, okay, God. Both come out of guilt, don't they? Something tells me this poor widow that empties her bucket or whatever she had was not giving with guilt in her heart. That doesn't smell like a guilty offering to say, mm-hmm. this, is, this is actually more of a desperate offering, just a, I don't know, I don't know, sure, hey, I love you, I'm yours. Cling, cling. And Jesus notices it. The question for us as we think about this is, what does it really mean to have Jesus be the king? What does it really mean to be part of this kingdom, to say, wow, I guess all of it is yours. All of it. The plenty or the lack thereof. It's all yours. And it's easy to kind of hang on to it and to think, well, God, I've, I mean, I've given you this, and I've given you this, and I've given you this, but, but just kind of let me run with this, would you? <laughs> and maybe the, the beauty of this widow giving out of her poverty is meant to make us see that when you say yes to Jesus, He's got it all. He's got it all. And there is no, way, no more sort of reserved thinking of like, well, you know, maybe I just kind of let me be calculated. That's why we even call our offering time here joy time. Honestly, I mean, I know it sounds kind of funny, like, hey, joy time. And we all sort of laugh this ironic laugh, you know, <laughs> joy time, you know, you know. <laughs> and I'm okay with that. But how we say is how we see, isn't it? And so I want us to keep saying, this is joy time, because this is when we joyfully say, wow, God, we're part of this. We're part of this. And if I can zero in even more specifically, this church is part of what Jesus the King is doing in the world. I believe that with all my heart, I wouldn't be here. I mean that. Over the last several weeks, we've been talking as as a team, as a leadership team, with Pastor Brady, about all the things that God is beginning to bring to fruition in our hearts. You know about the first Dream Center that we opened up in the city. There's a plan that is about to unfold in partnership with the city to provide for uh, the the quote-unquote new homeless of Colorado Springs. You know what that is, the new homeless? It's the ones who are living out of their cars. They're the ones who hang out in Walmart after midnight just so the kids can stay warm for a couple more hours. That's real. And there's a plan that's unfolding to provide apartments for them. There's a plan that's unfolding. Look, we don't got plenty of money. (laughs) 
I know you come to this campus and you look at this and you go, oh, this church is loaded, man. You know what we're loaded down with? We're loaded down with a $23 million debt. But the reality is we pay a debt service every month, a mortgage of $200,000. That's a lot of money. And when you think of that, you think, oh, this is, that's awful. You could. You could hear that and say, well, that's just awful. I don't want to be part of this. Or you could say, look what's coming out of this place. Look what we're able to do and the people we're able to care for. But then I would say, let's think even beyond that. What could we do if we didn't have that payment every month? What's beyond us? What's on the other side of our faithfulness? What's on the other side of our sacrificial giving? What's on the other side of this? Who's waiting on the other side of this? That's saying, I wish the people of God would quit being so tight-fisted and skeptical and self I wish the church could be the church. What's on the other side of this? Who's waiting on the other side of this? I'm not, we're not going to take a second offering tonight, so don't panic, okay? <laughs> not pulling your heartstrings here. Going to sell you a hanky for special blessings. None of that, okay? God bless them, whatever. That, you know, let the Lord use anything, I guess. I'm just asking you to think about what it means to be the people of God together. Together. And to say, you know what? If I'm God's, then I'm God's. Then God's work on the earth, let it, let it be. Let it just, let, come on, God, do it. We're talking about all kinds of stuff that I wish I could b- begin to share, but Brady, Brady is, is challenging the church. He said this morning, that was pretty funny. He said, look, I'm fine with banks, but I would rather not give money to the banks. I would rather give money towards the mission of Christ in our city. And so next year, the elders have been praying about this. Next year, we're, we're launching kind of this, this whole thing of, let's, what if we, could, we, could the Lord do something incredible and move this mountain away? So three, four months from now, mid-March, will be kind of the first sort of special offering sort of moment. I'm telling you this now because, you know, we spend a lot of money this time of the year. But maybe you could prayerfully say, God, you know what? I, I want to do something. It's a one-time kind of thing. Maybe, I'll, maybe we'll set aside some. Maybe we'll work towards Why? Because we love buildings. The widow was giving to a temple treasury box. Let's not forget that. Well, so let's see. How good was that temple? I mean, wasn't that Herod's temple? And wasn't, you know? Jesus doesn't go there, does he? He says, you know what? I see what's inside this widow. What's inside of her is this desire to say, I'm all in, God. And Jesus pays attention to that. I wonder if part of how we are, how we respond to Jesus the King is not just with a warm, fuzzy, thanks, God, I'm, your, I'm all in. But I wonder if we put our money where our mouth is. Quite literally, I wonder if we say, you know what? All right, what is the mission of God, Jesus the King, in Colorado Springs? What is the mission of Jesus the King in this city? What is the mission of Jesus through New Life Church in this city? How can we participate in it? Like Paul says to the Philippians, how can we be partners in this? This is something I want you to think about. Pray about it. Think about it. I'm challenging you. Pastor Brady's challenging us. And I'm being challenged by it. The next three, four months, let's think about this. But whatever you do give, it's not, again, it, the issue is not, well, I, you know, I can't give. I mean, I, I, don't, I can give a thousand. I, can't, you know, I don't have a job. I can't, you know, look, it's not that. The question, the real question at the heart of all of this tonight is, who's got you? Who's got you? 
most of the people, and I was like this because I came out of ORU and I was so upset about this whole giving and money thing. And I, was, I used to get in arguments with the best of them about who, you know, hey, now technically tithing this. And, this. and then a, one of my good friends said, hey, Glenn, you think you're having a harder time with all this now because you actually have a job that pays more money? You know? No. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> you know? And it's uncomfortable to say, you know what? This isn't a money issue. This is, you know, this is a King Jesus issue in my heart. And God, I just want to let you know I'm yours. You've got me. That may not mean much money. It may mean one penny. Doesn't matter. What it means is, Jesus, you've got me. You've got me. Let's pray. As we pray tonight, I, I, I thought it would be cool to put this prayer of David in the message translation back onto the screen and, uh, and for us to pray it together. Um, and so let's look at these words with the same kind of phrase by phrase. And I sort of changed a few of the U's to we's so that we could pray this together and make this kind of our prayer to the Lord. But who are we that we should presume to be giving something to you? Everything comes from you. All we're doing is giving back what we've been given from your generous hand. As far as you're concerned, we're homeless, shiftless, wanderers like our ancestors. Our lives, mere shadows, hardly anything to us. We know, dear God, that you care nothing for the surface. You want us, our true selves. And so we have given from the heart, honestly and happily. We are giving freely, willingly. What a joy. Oh God, God of our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, keep this generous spirit alive forever in us, always. Keep our hearts set firmly in you and give us uncluttered and focused hearts so that we can obey what you command and live by your directions and counsel. And so, Jesus, thank you. We're not giving to impress you. That would be a lost cause. We're not giving to pay you back. That, too, would be a lost cause. It's nothing that we have, Lord, to impress you or to save ourselves or justify ourselves. Nothing. But we surrender everything, God. Help us not to hold back any place, any area, not our families, not our decisions, not our jobs, not our children. want you to know, God, we're so grateful that you've saved us. Holy Spirit, would you help us to live as people that belong to you? In Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great Thanksgiving. Advent starts next week. I'm telling you, you don't want to miss being part of this together. God bless you. Hey, there's two turkeys still available. Uh, if anybody would like that, Steve's again standing in this back corner with the red shirt. Please go talk to him. We don't want these to go to waste. If you need it, you know, maybe you know someone in need, go grab it tonight.